Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Today's episode is brought to you by our listeners and supporters over on our Buy Me A Coffee page. Thank you to you all for the support, whether that is giving our show a listen, leaving a review or comment, following us on our Twitter, or sharing the show with your friends and family. From the bottom of my heart, thank you all so much for the love and support. Today's episode is also brought to you by me. That's right. I'm today's sponsor, because I have exciting news to share with all of you. As of Monday this week, we have officially launched the Into the Night official merch store, another amazing accolade that I never thought we would ever get to do on the show. We are selling t-shirts, mugs, phone cases, and posters, all centered around the show that I host and the Finance Freddy's universe. Be sure to check it out, and for its first week of launch, you can use the promo code COUNTTHEDAYS for a 10% off your first order. Use the link in the description to hop over to the merch store and check it out for yourself. And now, on to the show. Good evening, and welcome to Shadow Scry, an official spinoff series from the Into the Night podcast. I'm your host, Nick, and thank you for listening. Welcome to the very first episode of our brand new series exclusive to our Buy Me Coffee members. For those listening to this on our main RSSS feed, we plan on releasing one episode on the main feed per month. However, most episodes will be released on our BMAC page. To start the series off, we will be going over the first three novella tales from the latest book series from the Finance of Freddy's Universe, Tales from the Pizzaplex number two. And as you can see from the title of this episode, we will be discussing the first novella in the book, Help Wanted, a prequel to none other than the game, Finance of Freddy's VR, Help Wanted. Wouldn't be FNAF without confusing names and titles now, wouldn't it? I'll give one final warning before we progress, though. This episode will contain spoilers. If you would like to read the story for yourself without being spoiled, which I highly recommend, there will be a link in the description to buy it for yourself. Check it out for yourself, and then come back here to listen to our discussion so you have full context. All good? Alright, let us begin. A brief recap of events present in Hell 1 for those who need a refresher. The story focuses on the life of Steve. Steve is a janitor who dreams of working for a tech company and designing video games. One day, Steve is approached by a well-dressed talent acquisition agent for Fast Entertainment named Brock. Having seen Steve's previous games, Brock offers him a job in creating four horror games for Fazbear Entertainment. The games, however, would be based on the acquisitions on the company as a way for them to rebrand and move on from them. To sweeten the deal, Brock tells Steve he'd be moved to a more spacious and luxurious home, with all the amenities he could want. The one catch would be his access to the outside world would be very limited, as Fazbear Entertainment wants to prevent the game from being leaked. While Steve is excited about getting out of his dead-end job at the gas station, he'd never really been inspired to make horror games, instead preferring to make something more family-friendly oriented. However, even if he was in the market to make those games, he would still reject the offer as he is morally conflicted in creating games based on tragic events 
that were more than likely real. The next day, however, he receives a message from his dating app from an extremely beautiful woman named Victoria. She asks Steve to visit her house for a first date, and he's surprised to find that the house is empty. As he enters, he hears a loud, high-pitched ringing coming from the smoke alarm, despite not smelling any smoke at all. He reached out to turn off the smoke alarm, but as he does, he passes out. When he awakes, he finds that he's in the same house, but now it's filled with furniture and pictures of Victoria. When she enters, she claims that they've been together for a while and have two children named Abigail and Avery. Steve considers her tale about being in a car wreck and a side effect being that he occasionally suffers from memory loss. And Victoria encourages Steve to live in the moment and not worry about remembering the past. Just stay in the present. After a few days of living with his sudden new family, at least sudden to him, Victoria explains to Steve that they are currently in a bad financial situation, causing Steve to consider replacing his gas station job, although he is unsure if he even still has that job anymore. And through all this financial crisis, Barack reappears that exact same day quite conveniently and tells Steve his offer is still open. Steve agrees to the deal with Phasma Entertainment now allowing him to work at home as a deal sweetener. Steve has been contracted to make four games based on the supposed urban legends of Phasma Entertainment's past. As Steve works in the games, he finds himself haunted by visions and night terrors, but focuses on working on the games. But he keeps hearing noises from inside the walls. The walls pulsate occasionally, releasing a creature that attacks Steve from within it. Whenever he calls for Victoria, though, they disappear. Heavy snow forces Steve to stay in the house, which drives him crazy, as he hears a high-pitched ringing in his head that keeps getting louder. He realizes, though, the ringing only stops when he works on the games. After finishing three games, Steve is tired. On the radio, he tries to change the station from DJ Dan the Music Man, but Victoria tells him not to change the station. He tries anyway, but only gets static. He attempts to leave the house, but the ring in his head only gets louder the closer he reaches for the door. He thinks it's the fire alarm and breaks it in a rage. But when he does so, the ringing does stop, but now it gets replaced by the sound of gears grinding and wheels turning. The house looks different too, with tread marks across the floor and trap doors in the ceilings and walls. He believes this is where the creatures had came out from, and goes into hiding in the closet. As he does, he sees that Victoria and his children are actually animatronics. He tries to escape the house, but they corner him so he locks himself in the bedroom. As he holds the door back from their barrage, DJ Dan plays on the radio and starts to talk to Steve directly in a smooth, reassuring voice. Dan reminds Steve how sad and lonely his previous life was and that he was happy with Victoria and his children. Steve rebuts they weren't real and that he had night terrors, but DJ Dan says they were only supposed to be inspiration, and that if he only presses a red button on the radio, he will let Steve create his own reality as he wants it to be. Steve considers for a moment, recalling how he has only truly felt happiness in his life since he has gotten his family, fake or not. So, he acquiesces. He presses the button, causing a loud ringing, and for him to fall to the floor. When he wakes up, Victoria is in the doorway, and he goes up to hug her. 
He feels a wave of happiness and euphoria and relief. Even as Victoria stabs him through the heart, he cannot feel it, because it's being overpowered from the overwhelming wave of bliss. So what does this novella tell us? Well, it's actually surprisingly obvious what this story is about. What we are seeing here is a background in the rogue in developer Fast Entertainment hired to help make the light of the previous atrocities. This eventually led to the Super Parasol Games developing a VR game to solidify the sense as defamatory tales with the Freddy Fazbear virtual experience, which we see in FNAF VR Help Wanted, where we are also introduced for the first time to the concept of the rogue in the developer. We know that Fazbear Entertainment has developed something of a bad reputation over the last few decades, and while it's true that some stories associated with our name were loosely based on actual events, the majority of them were total fabrications from the mind of a complete lunatic. Lawsuits pending. We now know, though, there was more to that story than was originally let on. And once again, this was why I was so gushy over this book in episode 20. I was so elated that even if the other two stories were some of the worst writing ever, I'd recommend the book. I was so impressed and happy with this book finally going in the direction that fans have wanted the books to go in ever since the Silver Eye trilogy. Sure, it's fun to explore what-if scenarios and mess around with a sandbox of ideas, but none of it will effectively matter if it doesn't impact our knowledge of the world we care about. Taking risks and exploring details of stories to give answers to small questions is fantastic role-playing. Within Help Wanted, the story, we learn a few things about this small lore detail. First and foremost, we now have a face and a name to that rogue developer we saw in the game Help Wanted. Not only that, we now see how ruthless and cold Fastware Team was about covering up every aspect of its history after FFPS, even going so far as to kill Steve after discovered the illusion they created for him to keep what they had done hidden. This does bring up a good point in the direction the franchise is moving forward within the Steel Wool era. Fastware Entertainment in the past installments, essentially FNAF 1, The World of Custonite, was very clearly a corrupt corporation to an almost cartoony degree. However, they were also the trope of evil has standards occasionally, at least in the beginning of the timeline. Uh, Fastware Entertainment in the early years never went out of its way to ruin people's lives, and several times they did try to change up their business to improve safety and their image in the public light, such as banning spring-lock animatronics or developing the mark they the toy robots. Only in the later years did they become more egregious with their immorality, such as Henry throwing the FFPS manager in insane asylum if they grew suspicious, and who could forget Fazbear Entertainment covering the murders of the robots in the original Finance of Freddy's. Fazbear Entertainment is not responsible for damage to property or person, Upon discovering that damage or death has occurred, a missing person report will be filed within 90 days or as soon as property and premises have been thoroughly cleaned and bleached and the carpets have been replaced. But going so far with this elaborate scheme does make one considering more dangerously powerful Fastman Entertainment in the future. I believe in my Q&A episode, episode 14, I said that Fastman Entertainment had shifted from being a small sleazy establishment being squeezed to death for every last dime it could churn out more of an allegory to modern big media conglomerates like Disney, charming and kid-friendly on the outside, but disgusting trash is hidden behind every corner, and the entire establishment is built atop the corpses of innocent people's hopes and dreams. So I pause a question for all of you right now. 
Given the circumstances that Steve found himself in, I had to ask myself, what was Phasma Entertainment's endgame when Steve finished his work? I mean, sure, they probably would have just let him go with his money if he took the job up front. Probably. But when they go to such lengths as building a collection of robots and hallucinatory devices to sell an illusion to get him to work on the games, what happens when he's done? I submit that given the ending of the story where Steve even allows himself to be consumed by the illusion, Phasma Entertainment was always planning to kill Steve to ensure their cover story had no loose ends. Even if he took the job up front, they had always planned to kill him. He was someone who knew every tragic event, even if he was only doing so to make a mockery out of it and cover it up. He was someone who knew exactly what they wanted hidden. Consider this. During the story, Steve is effectively locked inside a snowstorm outside, keeping him from leaving. Instead, he just continues to work and work up in his attic, as the more time he spends downstairs, the more he has to endure the illusion and the constant ringing in his ear. Is it not possible, given Phasma Entertainment's apparent vast resources, even before the events that led to Security Breach, that Steve was kidnapped and moved? Is it not possible, after Steve drove out all the way to the country, where there exists no cell signal, Victoria had told him her house was, that after he was left unconscious by the high-pitched ringing of the illusion discs, that Phasma Entertainment had moved him to that undisclosed secure location Brock mentioned beforehand, fashioning it similar to the house he went to and using the illusion disc to sell the environment. It would explain why Steve never saw the trap door when he first went inside the home, and how Phasma Entertainment was able to decorate and move furniture so quickly in the house. It was already set up in a secure location, they just had to move Steve there. This could even explain how Fesmer team was able to ensure he couldn't leave the snowstorm. The illusion disc sold the idea of the snow and his inability to escape. I submit, this whole story, when Steve wakes up for the first time and Victoria tells him they are married with children, it all takes place in a Fesmer Entertainment warehouse, away from public eyes and an easy way for them to cover up his eventual disposal once his work is complete. But why? Why did they choose Steve? Couldn't they just hire any other random indie developer? While it is true on the surface, consider what else Steve offers compared to any other developer. But not when it comes to his skills or resume, but the characteristics of his personal life. Steve has no other family, only desires one. His job is a low level, low income an occupation where he can easily be replaced by anyone. In the story, he has only one real friend, and they rarely have time to get together and hang out as it is. His girlfriend is an online girlfriend, one he met through a dating app, and he has only had two real days with her. Steve is a perfect asset for Phasma Entertainment, but not in his skills or talents, but in his ability to disappear off the map without so much of a blip on the radar. Not enough connections render him vulnerable to Phasma Entertainment, allowing him to be taken without anyone thinking anything strange of it. When police later discover his body somewhere, or perhaps maybe they never will, he will just be one of thousands of missing persons a year. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. 
Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Another aspect of the story that has gotten many people both excited and nervous is the first official debut of the Illusion Discs. While they are never named directly by any of the characters, how they operate and how the events play out in the story make it clear that Illusion Discs are involved. This is the first time that we can unequivocally say that Illusion Discs are in the canon timeline, and there is really no other answer as to how Phasma Entertainment was able to make the illusions. Now, the one thing I want to make clear on Illusion Discs is that if we do pursue this idea further, like in other stories of the Tales from the Pizzaplex, I would like the next story to put some explicit rules on how they operate. Because while I did enjoy the story of Help Wanted, it did leave me questioning how exactly they work. From the Finest Phrase wikis on Illusion Disc abilities, quote, The discs employ five high-pitched frequencies that constantly change. The noise is only detected by the subconscious, which becomes overwhelmed by the patterns. This causes the listener's perception to change to what they expect to see, not what really is. I said effect of noise is feeling sick. The discs have a maximum range and do not affect vision after a certain point. Images of those affected by illusion discs appear blurry and distorted. End quote. That latter part, how the illusion discs have a maximum range and most likely is also limited by how many people are within the vicinity of an individual illusion disc, puts clear limits on its capabilities. I also assume that what illusion that they can project is something that has to be coded in in the frequency it emits individually, which explains the monsters coming out of the walls and how the snowstorm appears outside. Later on, those are elements uploaded to the discs later. But I also would like to limit who it affects. One of the reasons why many people didn't like the Illusion Discs original debut in the novel trilogy wasn't just because it seemed fairly out there for now at the time, but more so because the fourth closet kind of didn't make the rules make sense. Like, if it affects the mind of those who hear it, fair enough. But then how does it affect robots? Shouldn't they be immune since they don't have subconscious? Even possessed. I don't think it makes sense for them to see the illusions as well, right? Yet in the twisted ones in the fourth closet novel, Charlie, who also is a robot hidden by her own illusion discs, can see the illusions. Even if you want to argue that Henry programmed her to not be able to discern the illusions on herself, which I mean, how, it doesn't make any sense why she would be affected by the twisted animatronics or circus baby. And this does lead to the biggest issue that I'm going to predict will happen. Before I say it, I'm going to preface that I once again do not hate Matt Pat or Game Theory. I don't. I respect him. I like him. He isn't immune to criticism, but he does not deserve as much hate as he gets. However, I'm going to make a prediction. I am recording this on September 25th, so mark the calendar here. In the next Game Theory, in which he talks about how Tales from the Pizzaplex Book 2, he will reaffirm his position on Gregbot through Help Wanted once again reinstating that the robot children and adults are a thing in the franchise, and therefore his theory on Gregbot has to be correct. Just like how Mikebot and Bot Victim were correct, right? Okay, now that was a rude slide. I apologize for that. 
But the thing is, when Matt talks about Gridbot, especially how he responded to it in his last theory video, I think he is missing the point on why a large majority of the fanbase rejects the theory and makes fun of it. It's the same reason why so many people didn't like the fact Charlie was a robot in the fourth closet. Simply put, it comes out of nowhere and has no setup or foreshadowing to it. In the case of Charlie, it was an idea that was clearly not set up in the beginning and later added on when the fourth closet went to the drafting stages. So the reveal isn't satisfying and it leads to so many questions on how it works. The same goes for Gregory, but in reverse. For Gregory in Security Breach, there is really no evidence that he is a robot, but that is probably because the character was never supposed to be one. Steelwool, Scott, whoever was in charge of certain story directions with the character did a terrible job in establishing him. Gregory actually works with any theory when trying to explain who he is. It's the point that if the review was that Gregory was a robot, it would still come across as unsatisfying because it was never properly established in the game in which he was presented. There were no breadcrumbs that you can look back and think, oh, the hints were there the whole time. It's the same issue that Glamrock Freddy B and Michael has, and I personally like that theory. Unlike Gregbot, I'll say that if done properly, I think the reveal can still work, as the character Glamrock Freddy is a clear highlight of Secure Breach and Michael being a supernatural influence would be an amazing reveal for that particular character. But more work now has to be done on that reveal now to make it effective because of how Secure Breach handled its story. Like, let's just recollect on Michael Abbott's reveal at the end of Custom Night in Sister Location real quick. When it was revealed, the character we played in Sister Location was William Afton's son, a son who just looks like his father. So many pieces fall into place. Why the Handian tablet had the words Mike on it? Why the night guard kept coming back every night? Why Michael was seen as William? And even why his decayed state ending with him turned with purple? Going further, it revealed so much of the entire FNAF storyline. Considering he is William's son in the private room of Sister Location, we can now deduce he was the foxy brother in FNAF 4. Yet he states he will find his father, it implies heavily he was the night guard who played in at least FNAF 3 and FNAF 1. And given his termination notice in FNAF 1, it further implies he was the night guard who plays Jeremy in Night 7 of FNAF 2. So much of the past was made so much more explicitly clear and put to a larger perspective through Michael's reveal. It changed the entire dynamic of Final Fantasy storyline from one of a ghost story of a serial killer to that of a broken family that was eternally damned to linger on after death from the sins of the father. Something as consequential as Michael after returning, or even Gregory being a robot, can't be something that fans have to interpret from theories. It needs to be an active element of the plot, else it does a disservice to the character in the past, or ruins the characters in the present, respectively. It's not an issue really when it comes to MatPat, and I don't blame him for trying to make silver from coal when it comes to making theories on Security Breach. It is his job, and people have an expectation of him to make theories on it. So when it comes to Gregbot, personally, Matt, I don't think it's an attack on you when fans say they think your theory is wrong. It is them actively complaining about the storytelling of the game you are covering, if it happens to be the answer. Because, realistically, how were fans even supposed to come up with that answer? Speaking of games that are near impossible to interpret, Help One also brings theory material to none other than Final Fantasy Freeze 4. Yes, for 70 years this game has been released, and we still have no clue as to what we're supposed to extract from it. 
However, given the elements of how the story of Help One is presented, it is given a resurgence to the dream experiment theory in FNAF 4, popularized after Sizzlecation. For those of you who do not remember or need a refresher on the dream experiment theory, it suggests that the nightmare animatronics are just experiments by William that he did with his kids, hence the observation cameras seen in Sizzlecation's secret room. The nightmares, similar to the twisted animatronics in the novel trilogy, are utilizing the illusion discs to make them appear more terrifying and allow them to break the rules of reality. That being said, while this theory has been rejuvenated, and I definitely can see where people are taking evidence from it, I, I highly doubt this was the intent of the story. The main reason is that dream experiment theory's biggest problem comes from one simple conundrum. Why? Just why? Why does it even exist? Why would William torment his kids in Final Fantasy IV? Whose perspective do we even get on those nights now? What about Nightmare, who is heavily implied to be the story's representation of death? Why would Michael tell his friends about the nightmares he has, because he clearly has a social circle, and also be scared of the robots just like his younger brother? Unless it is the crime shell reading the perspective from in FNAF 4. But William is shown to be negligent to all his children, so why would he torment his youngest if he doesn't care about them? It's implied that Elizabeth died before the events of FNAF 4 through the sister's room with the torn-out mangle doll, so maybe it was William trying to deter his children from going up to the Funtime animatronics. But wait a minute. If that was the case, Elizabeth was already dead and the Funtimes were discontinued, so what would be the point? And those questions don't really get answered, which is the biggest issue with the theory since it replaced the original interpretation of it being nightmares of the crying child in FNAF 4 after his head was crushed and was placed in a coma and it replaces it with something more nonsensical and overall inconsequential. Yes, inconsequential. You could say it was an attempt at an explanation of his fears. But is that really preferable to something like the heart-wrenching tragedy of him being tormented by his fears up until his deathbed? Okay, I guess one could see it preferable when described that way. But when it comes to story crafting, it is replacing something heart-wrenching with needless information. It also doesn't answer why things like the eye of Egypt, the pills, the flowers, appear on the bedside, which is a big indication that it took place after the events of the Bite of 83. Also, also, the easter egg that everyone likes to point out of the phone guy's call on night one of the original game can be heard, albeit distorted in the background occasionally while playing in the night modes of FNAF 4. Perhaps given the presence of Nightmare, as well as Nightmare Fredbear drawing in the survival logbook, these nightmares are from the perspective of Michael now, and Michael never endured the dream experiments because William didn't care for him, and thus didn't care if he died. And Nightmare, Golden Freddy, or even the marionettes was just simply showing Michael what his younger brother had seen. So he, since the crying child had nightmares, and now some other force is showing Michael the nightmares during that one. Okay, yeah, it possibly adds up, but it's so convoluted and requires so much information. Like, like everyone understands, to understand this one game, FNAF 4, we need the game itself. We need certification for the private room and the break room's map. You need the survival log for the idea of Michael's having the nightmares. You then need to have read Help Wanted to get the concept of the illusion disc being in the canon that could apply to the nightmares of FNAF 4. And then finally, you need to have read the Silver Eye trilogy to fully understand how the illusion discs work in the first place. Yeah, 
I know I'm supposed to be optimistically positive about FNAF, and normally I am. And this book has reinvigorated that spirit within me in this series. I am super excited to see what else FNAF has in store thanks to it. But, no, 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 no. No, just make the answer something simple that you can solve via the story present in FNAF 4. It should not require all these leaps of logic and forging to understand one story. In the case of Michael Aft I talked about earlier, it didn't really alter everything. It was direct story element that gave a new perspective and expand the scope of a story. It was clever world building. Dream experiment theory replaces what was already present in FNAF 4 with the conclusion that Michael had the FNAF 4 dreams? Okay, who cares? That William tormented his children? Yeah, we kind of got that. He was an abusive father from FNAF 4. In Immortal Restless, it became pretty clear that he neglected Michael. And even in the novel trilogy, he punched Elizabeth in the face. These are all things we know and can presume given, you know, he is a serial killer. That being said, I think this is another Gregbot scenario where you can see the pieces, but the concept of it all has divided the fandom because the answers are not obvious. In some ways, worse than what it originally was intended to be. And a reminder, this is effectively going to be the third time FNAF 4 will have changed if this turns out to be true, as it basically became a prequel to explain Michael Afton's origin at this location's custom night. Yeah, it's so confusing and needlessly so. Because I, this is off script, but everyone understands FNAF 4 has gotten so complicated that if you went down and tried to sit someone down to understand everything I just went through, it would sound like an alien language. Like, that is way too much for one game. The best way to explain why I think going down the direction is a bad idea comes from an old theory that also cropped up when Michael Acton was first revealed. The theory is that Michael, who looks like his father, was confused by the spirits and locked inside Springtrap in FNAF 3. The idea of Michael trying to do the right thing but ultimately being condemned with the same fate as those he was trying to help is tragic, yes. But is it worth the cost if it replaces the satisfying ironic fate of William Afton being condemned to the same damnation and pain his victims had by possessing Springtrap? I don't think so. In conclusion, I do think Help One is a right step in the direction the series need to go in especially after Security Breach. It is exactly what I think allowed the fate of one of the Faster Fight books to be, exploring the world and expanding events in interesting ways, not from another timeline, not an interpretation of events, actual lore from the story we know getting expanded upon in an interesting way that makes us appreciate what was there before. But there are still issues with it. From a simple story perspective, it suffers from utilizing a plot element that being the illusion disc in a rather obvious manner if you're familiar with it. The fact we get the whole setup with Brock and then Victoria responds to Steve the very same day clearly makes everything seem suspicious. Add him looking up to the fire alarm with the ringing in his ear before being placed in his dream life makes the eventual twist quite obvious to all those who are not fans of the series. Despite the illusion disc never being made official until now, it's quite obvious that this was going to be its debut and that was what was cracked in the small paradise of Steve's. I think the story was cut down to when he woke up the first time and had grown accustomed to his family, and then Victoria approached him about their bad financial situation, and then after a few days, Brock showed up. I think the story would be a lot more surprising. 
Until then, you're kind of waiting to see what will happen when Steve eventually pulls the curtains back and the ending is revealed to be the true twist. I never expected him to go back to the illusion, let alone die after performing to Fazbear's wishes. But from a lore perspective, it succeeds and fails. It's great to have more information about such a small details in the series like the rogue and the developer. Now, when thinking back and replaying the game I felt wanted, when the rogue and developer is mentioned, I will recall Steve Snodgrass and how Fazbear Entertainment cleverly calculated their marketing strategy when it came to Freddy Fazbear's personal experience. It'll make me cringe with hatred and how the one-time joke about that he developed being a complete lunatic was them describing a lonely man who just wanted to bring life to the world and raise a beautiful family. However, it bringing the illusion this in in somewhat of a careless way will bring a predicament if another story doesn't clarify its goals and rules. As well as more clarification on FNAF 4, isn't that just a problem, you know? FNAF 4, really? It's that small problematic screw in the foundation of the franchise that every time an explanation of some lore is given, another game, story, or some lore drama must be required now to comprehend what is even going on with that game. You know, personally, I think theorizing is over now with FNAF 4. It needs to be over with so people can move on from it. With a story like this being written, it fuels my hope that we will get a story from the Tales from the Pizza Plex that contains an active family member's perspective that finally answered the question of what happened. Because without any form of direct communication, we will never understand it. It will never stop going over this game again and again and again. Here's to hoping that in a future game, a future story, you'll follow help on its path and get more intriguing world building out of lore in this franchise. Before we wrap up, I want to go over some fun details from the story some may have missed. Steve Snodgrass has many parallels to Scott Cawthon himself, playing along with the joke presented in that VR Help Wanted, where when Hanya describes the rogue Indeveb, a silly and ridiculous picture of Scott Cawthon himself is used. While reading the story, you can actually spot several small details where they clearly took inspiration from Scott Cawthon himself. For example, Steve Snodgrass's waking nightmares, which Victoria tells Steve is a result of his sleepwalking, are actually a reference to Scott Cawthon himself. Scott was prone to nightmares and sleepwalking, even while developing the original Finance of Freddy's. In one nightmare, Bonnie was out in the bedroom hallway, so he got up and tried to close the door, but it was locked, and that means he was about to get killed because when you can't move the doors, the Amtron is inside. He panicked, but luckily he woke up. That source also came from one of the first interviews Scott ever did. Steve Snodgrass was always developing a family friendly game involving a chipmunk. Given the type of animal and several other passing marks in the book, it's pretty obvious that the game Steve was originally developing and hoping to be picked up by another publisher is an allegory to Scott developing Chipper and Sons Lumberco, a child from the game that was criticized for its uncanny designs, specifically his character being called Scary Animatronics. It was this game that would be the inspiration for Finance of Freddy's. This same game would also be later referenced in Finance of Freddy's itself with the character of Elo Chip, introduced in Freddy Fazbear's Pizza Ranger Simulator and referenced numerous times in the Steelwall era of games, including having the mascot have his own food court in Security Breach. Steve developing the games for Fazbear Entertainment can also be seen as a reference to Scott Cawthon's in development history before Finance of Freddy's. As Scott went off to make small slot and card games to be sold for pennies to make a few extra dollars for his family. Steve taking the deal for Fazbear Entertainment to make ends meet for his family could have had inspiration for the development cycle Scott Cawthon had before creating Finance of Freddy's.
I would like to thank everyone for listening. If you'd like to stay updated, please consider subscribing, following, or sharing this podcast. Your support means the world to us here, and we cannot thank you all enough for it. Please consider following us on our Twitter at Fazbear Podcast or supporting us on our Buy Me a Coffee page using the link in the description. Those of you who continue to support us, we thank you. Next time on Shadow Scrying, we will be looking at the titular story of Tales from the Pizza Flex number two, Paps. A bit of a wonky tale and one that lends itself to be exploring more of the mysterious Pizza Plex. So be sure to stay tuned for the next episode, available exclusively for our Buy Me a Coffee page members. Once again, I've been your host, Nick, and thank you for listening. Have a good night. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.